This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Manal Gillette, a Baha'i of Iranian descent who was born in Iraq, knew only Arabic when she moved to Iran at the age of 22, and then moved to Africa a few years later, teaching math and science for nearly 30 years in the country of Cameroon. I asked Manal how it ended up that she, being of Iranian descent, ended up being born and raised in Iraq. Actually, my father comes from Iran. He was born and bred in Tehran. Mm -hmm. He was uh, born as a Muslim and grew up as a Muslim. Mm -hmm. He was married and he had three children. Mm -hmm. By the time he heard about the message of Baha'u'llah and he decided to become a Mm Baha'i. Then his wife, who was his cousin, Mm -hmm. didn't uh, feel good about it. And his uh, uncle, his father-in-law, was very unhappy with him. And then he ha- he faced a lot of um, persecution from the society as well. Mm-hmm. I can't really talk about it because so bad, it's so bad to talk about what he really faced. Then he had to really leave the country mm. and because his wife left him. Mm. They asked him to recant his faith in public. They can make a very big uh, meeting and all the family and the neighbors come together and he recant his faith and also say something negative about it. And my father refused. Therefore, he left Iran and he went to the Holy Land and he stayed with the guardian for about six months. Okay, let's explain a couple of things here. The Holy Land being Israel. Israel. And Haifa is the international center for the Baha'i faith. And the guardian is the... is. Shoghi Effendi, who was entrusted with being in charge of the Baha'i faith after the passing of of Abdul Baha, Baha'u'llah's son. That is true. That is true. And that year was, I think, um, in the early 30s, you know, 1930. Mm. And then the Guardian advised my father not to go to Iran, but go either to Egypt or to Iraq. Then my father went to Egypt, and then he stayed for about six months. He didn't like it. Then he went to Iraq, and he stayed there. Mm-hmm. Yes. What part of Iraq? Baghdad, the capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he met his... Oh, actually, my mother was born uh, when my father... The first time my father came to Iraq, that's means 1928, I think. Mm-hmm. My father actually entered Iraq... Mm. And uh, that's the year my mother was born. So your father was 
significantly older than your mother. Yes, I think more than 25 years. Mm, mm -hmm. Between 25 and 30 years. How long was he in, he in Iraq before he married your mother? Oh, it should be uh, 20, at least 22, 23, 24. Now, we, knew, we know that the Baha'is in Iran went through persecution. What was it like in Iraq? You know, in Iraq, the, the society is really not that religious, you know, and they don't really ask, they don't care so much, but actually they are all Muslims, and they never ask what the Baha'i faith is all about. But in the 70s, actually, when Saddam Hussein came to power, he thought, you know, the Baha'is may have something to do with Israel, and that's why he put about 29 of the Baha'is in a prison for about six years. Not because of what they believe, not at all, but he felt like they have something to do, that threat to him, and not that because of what they believed. Mm -hmm. No. You know, Saddam Hussein, I don't think he is... Uh, He's not fanatics about religion, really. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. not fanatic. Maybe you could explain quickly why is it that these regimes associate both Iran and Iraq or other parts of the Muslim world, why they associate the Baha'i faith with Israel? Yes, I think because um, the Baha'i whole places are in Israel, and all the Baha'is send contribution to Israel, so they associate that maybe, you know, there's something more than religion. And how is it that there ended up being Baha'i holy places in Israel, if the faith was yes. stemmed from Iran? Actually, that's what they need to understand, you know, because Baha'u'llah was banished, was exiled to Israel. And he passed away in Israel, and he was there while all his family was were with him. And therefore, it became a holy place, and the family all stayed after his death, generation after generation. And then it expanded, the holy places expanded, and uh, that is the only place the Baha'i faith could settle in. Mm -hmm. And uh, until today, it is holy for all religions, plus the Baha'i faith too. Mm -hmm. During the 70s, when Saddam Hussein was in power, was your father impacted by... No, no. We were all in Iran by then. All okay. of us, yes. All right. Let's go back to your mother for a second. Your mother yeah. was born in Iraq? My mother was born in Iraq. Her grandfather was from Hamadan in Iran. He was mm -hmm. Jewish, and he was a physician, a doctor. Mm -hmm. And he became a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. And when he became a Baha'i, he decided to move to Iraq. By then, he was young. He was not married. So when he came to Iraq, he married a Jewish Iraqi woman. Mm -hmm. And then he had children with her. Mm -hmm. But later on, all of them went back to Iran. But when my grandmother was very young, she married a Baha'i. And she was the only one to stay in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And that's how she gave birth to my mother as one of her children. Okay. So then... Your mother and father, at what point did they move? To Iran? Yeah. It was, uh, my father actually left maybe early 70s. Then we all moved. By the mid-70s, we, all the family was in Tehran. And how old were you? 
I was 20, 22. So you grew up in Iraq? Actually, I finished university in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Iran. Yeah. And what was it like for you growing up in Iraq? Oh, it was it was fun. It was okay, but the whole society, you know, remind you you are not Iraqian, though we don't look different. But uh, our you know our paper, our birth certificate, our document, all was Iranian and in Iraq. Even if you are born in Iraq, you don't have the nationality. You are always considered as a foreigner. Mm -hmm. I think all Arab countries is the same. Mm -hmm. It's not like America. You are born in America and immediately you get an uh, American passport. It's not the same. Even to go to school, it was hard to go to university. It was very, very difficult. Only a few seats were for the foreigners and you had to have very good uh, result in your uh, secondary school education before you can really go to university. Mm -hmm. So when I finished, you know, there was no job for me as a foreigner. Therefore, I had to leave. I, I wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what was it like growing up as a Baha'i in Iraq for you? Oh, it was good because the Baha'i community was very, very united and very, uh, everybody, we felt like one big family. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it was a pride to us to be Baha'is, mm -hmm. you know. It's not, uh, it was not depressing or, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was a very nice experience. So you didn't feel any kind of persecution or anything when you were mm, in Iraq? Not at all, though the people never acknowledged, you know, that there is a faith different than the Muslim who was, who could be, you know, worthy to investigate mm -hmm. because they think Islam is the best and final and the highest uh, stage is the highest stage you can ever reach mm -hmm. to go closer to God. Mm -hmm. So they never even ask. They are not interested. Mm. And how was the university? Oh, it was very nice. Mm -hmm. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I found a positive experience for you. Oh, very positive. Yeah. Yes. So then you left for Iran right after university? Yes. Mm -hmm. What part of Iran did you go? Tehran, because uh, I had, you know, as I have said before, my father was married and I had two sisters and a brother. So I went there and I was with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were the oldest in the family? No, I'm the second. Oh, okay. So yeah. you had an older sister. sister, older sister. Yes, and a did, younger brother. Did she also go to university? Yes. In Iraq? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And she also moved with you or your family too? Yes, yeah. So what was it like when you got to Iran? Being That was like your first, mm -hmm. your first <laughs> arrival to Iran. Iran. So what was that like? Well, it was mixed feeling. I didn't know the language and the culture. And uh, I didn't have a job, but it was very easy to find a job because by then the prime minister said anybody who studied out of Iran and has a bachelor degree can come back to the country and will be given a job. And I got a job after 23 days being in Iran, though I didn't really know the language. So it was good, but it was first very difficult because the language barrier, uh, but later on, I, but people were welcoming. Mm -hmm. Though, you know, Iraq and Iran, you know, the people are so different. 
Iraqian didn't appreciate being me, being Iranian, you know. And I- Iranian didn't appreciate the fact I um, I was raised in an Arab country because they thought Arabs are wild, they are not civilized, and they hated each other, actually. So it's a challenge in Iraq to say I'm Iranian, and it was a challenge in Iran to say I came from Iraq. I was mm. born and bred in Iraq. They mm. asked so many funny questions, like whether the streets were paved, whether you had schools, you know, it's just ignorance. Right, right. And uh, what was your job like? In Iran? Mm-hmm. I was a chemist. Mm-hmm. I did chemistry in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, working in, in an office where we controlled the quality of all what was made in Iran, you know, like fridges, uh, whatever radios, food, soap, whatever you think was made in the country, drinks, everything, everything uh, we control the quality and whether it was up to the international quality. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did that involve travel at all, or? Oh no! Yes, yes. Sometimes we had to, you know, depend on what you did. So when I did like. Uh, beer and I had to go to all the countries made beer Mm. so some of these uh, factories were outside Tehran so I did travel actually but Mm. not out of the country Mm -hmm. inside the country Mm -hmm. did you notice a different attitude toward you if people or institutions knew you were a Baha'i in Iran versus in Iraq Uh, not at all you know all the people I worked with were really educated. Mm-hmm. So they had, many, many of them had very positive ideas about Baha'is, not about the Baha'i faith, you know, because they don't ask you what the Baha'i faith all about. Mm-hmm. But they know Baha'is because there were so many Baha'is. Mm-hmm. But the downtown people, no, you know, they don't really like, the, they don't want to associate with the Baha'is. And uh, like my, part of my family, my relatives, were, who were Muslims, they actually didn't really want to have so much to do with me. Mm. Or so your they family, li- I guess. At the beginning, yes, you know, they really didn't want to maybe see us. But later on, you know, we were very nice to them. We really loved them because we didn't have any relative in the country. They were the only relatives we had, and therefore we loved them. We always visited them, and therefore they changed mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. They were more welcoming mm-hmm. to us as people, but not as Baha'is. Mm. So how long did you work there as a chemist? Four years. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after that? Well, you know, when I went to Iran, I didn't go with the idea to stay. Mm-hmm. I went with the idea that I must leave the country because, you know, we are Baha'is and uh, our institution always advised the Baha'is to leave Iran because we were so many Baha'is in a society which was not ready to hear about the Baha'i faith. How many Baha'is? Oh, Hundreds, 
hundreds of thousands. In Iran, in Tehran alone, we were about 100,000 Baha'is. Mm. So therefore, you know, the institution advised us to go to places where the people don't know about the Baha'i faith. They haven't heard about Baha'u'llah. Mm. So therefore, you know, since I was a child, I was very obedient to my parents. Therefore, I didn't feel comfortable to stay in Iran although I loved it. I loved life there. I loved the people. And I tell you the truth, it was not really easy to pull out and go, but I was supposed to go. I so felt... your parents were a bit reluctant to let you... Oh, very go. much so. My mother was very much against it, mm -hmm. but I did. Mm. So where did you go? And how did, it, uh, how did you end up choosing where you went? Actually, you know, since my mother was very much against it, my sister was working with the committee and there were a group of youth going to attend a conference in Africa and it was in Cameroon. So my sister and my brother by then said, just let us you know, arrange that you go with this group and just go and don't come back. Then I said, Okay, you know, because I didn't have really enough courage to ask my mother. But my mother could tell. So she was, she didn't say anything. So I went. Before we went to, to Cameroon, we went to Israel. And in Israel, I felt like talking to a member of the House of Justice. That's our supreme uh, governmental body. Yes, whom I really trusted so much. And one of them in particular was very spiritual, very nice person. So I spoke to him and I told him my plan that I'm going to Cameroon and I am not coming back. He asked me many questions about the history, who my mother was. And, and you know, my father had just died. Oh. It was like uh, two, three months before that my father had died. So when I told him all this, he meditated. He closed his eyes and he thought very deeply. And he said to me, no, go back. Your mother will accept your decision. And you will go back to Africa and your life will change. Mm. These are the exact words he said to me. Mm. And then I think I was relieved, you know, because I had mixed feeling. Feeling of leaving. The obligation of leaving. Mm. The obligation toward my mother. And also the attachment I had to my country. Mm. Mm. So I felt very relaxed, you know, that I will go back. But my life will change and I will go back to Africa, you know. It gave me a lot of uh, happiness. Mm. So when I went to Cameroon, you know, I, I, was, I was very sure I'm coming back. You know, we had all fear of Africa. We thought, you know, Africa is like a jungle, you know, and things were very primitive and people you can't reach. But actually we found it much different than we thought you know life was not as uncivilized as we thought and people were very kind very nice very educated i mean many of them 
and therefore we didn't it was not hard to live there mm-hmm. so we realized it was not mm-hmm. hard to live there mm-hmm. so we we went back okay so you were there and then you had made a decision while you were there that you would come go come back to Iran and settle your affairs and then Actually, when I went back, you know, I was waiting for a change, as Mr. Nahjavani told me, the member of the House of Justice. So when I went back, there was a big change. You know, people were um, mad about the Shah. They wanted the Shah to leave. And, you know, in our house, we lived on a street which was in the middle of the town, and you will see thousands of people. On the road, going from one build government building to another, burning, and when one of them was shot by the police, they would carry the corpse all around town, so the, there was a lot of chaos, real, real chaos so I told my mother I would like to go back what and she was very wise, and you know, she usually very get very, very angry. But she was very wise this time, and she was very angry, but she didn't show it too much. So she went to the leader of the Baha'i faith, but the leader of the Baha'i faith, we call it the local spiritual assembly, which is made from nine people, and these nine people are voted for every year. They are renewed. So this is the leader of the community of Tehran. Mm-hmm. So she went and she complained to them that my husband had just died and I have only these children. And my sister by then was in Britain and she had only me and my brother. Mm-hmm. So my mother complained to them. They said, okay, no problem. We will send for her and we will talk to her. So one day I received an invitation from the local spiritual assembly. And when I went... They immediately, they were so happy to see me. They said, oh, you know, because I knew two of them whom they were my teachers. I attended their classes. And immediately said, okay, 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 no problem, no problem. Just go. We We are going to speak to your mother. So they spoke to my mother and persuaded her and mm. she accepted. And But I believe it is one of the miracles Miracles happened in my life. Oh, her changing her, her Yes, just let me go. Yeah. But I tell you, it was still very sad. I felt very guilty. Mm. I think I remember the night, you know, I slept my last night there. I couldn't sleep till morning. I really wept because mm. I felt I my mother is going to be very sad. Now you had younger siblings. I had a younger brother. One younger brother. And how old was he at the time? He was in his early 20s. He had just finished university, and he was uh, a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. But he later on, he died in an accident. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. So the pathway was cleared for you to return to Cameroon? Actually, yes. And two other friends decided to go to Cameroon. So I traveled with two of them. So we were three of us. Mm. We went together. Mm -hmm. So that's made it easy also for my mother because at the airport she saw other parents saying goodbye to their daughters. So 
I think that kept my mother happy. Mm. And, yeah. Now, David, your husband referred to sort of a harrowing experience trying to get to the airport. Can you describe that? Oh, my God, yes. You know, I wonder how you remember that. <laughs> yes, you know, at that, uh, at that morning, it, there was a big chaos in the, in the town, and people were burning places and rioting on the street, and there was no taxi to take me to the airport. So I phoned a Baha'i friend who came and with her brother and took me right to the airport. You know, she could really take this adventure because she had a reason for it. But no taxi driver would take such a decision. Mm -hmm. The reason being... The and she was... Friend. She's still in Iran until today. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So you got there. David also mentioned that you hadn't even left your apartment until the flight was scheduled to take off. So it was like a sense of hopelessness that the plane would not be there when you got there. Is that true? Oh, yes, because I left the house much later than what I was supposed to, you know. So, But uh, fortunately, the flight was delayed, and uh, all of us went on the plane. Now, this was during the riots while the Shah was in power. How much longer was it before the Shah left Oh, just a few months, actually. I left uh, November 1978, mm -hmm. and the Shah left shortly after that, and mm -hmm. Khomeini took over, I think, 1979? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. So, you got on the plane and flew to Cameroon? Actually, we flew to Italy, and we stayed two days in Italy, mm -hmm. and uh, we had fun in Italy. Mm -hmm. Then we arrived in Cameroon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happened when you landed in Cameroon? Uh, we stayed with one family for a few days, and then I decided to go and stay in the National Baha'i Center, and uh, mm -hmm. we did a lot of visiting communities around the, mm -hmm. the city and uh, we had a lot of fun mm -hmm. getting to know people and culture and the language. And what part of Cameroon was that? That was Limbe. It is near the ocean. Mm -hmm. So then what happened? Then I stayed and we had to, you know, there were so many summer schools, conferences. By then, you know, I had known David for some time. Mm. And David asked me to marry him. Mm. And then we got married in 1979. Okay. Yeah. So that was... Uh, About a year after mm -hmm. we... You had arrived. And so did you have to move once you got married? Yes, actually. He was uh, living in a different town in mm -hmm. Kribi. Mm -hmm. It was still on the ocean. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to move with him. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you hadn't gotten a job yet at this point? No, I wasn't mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. No, it was French area, uh, French-speaking area. Okay. Yeah. But so, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. So let's back up a minute. So you went to Iran when you were 22, mm -hmm. and you didn't know a stitch of Farsi. Not at all. But I learned it there. And how many years were you in Iran? Four years. You and know, you were I learned it in, in fluent uh, in Farsi by the time yes, you finished. Yes, yes, actually. But you know, people always sense that I speak it with an accent. Oh. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, you can yeah. So you you grew up speaking Arabic? Yes. And then learned Farsi for the four years you were in Iran? Yes. And then you go to Cameroon and you run into French? Actually, yes. But there were so many English-speaking friends came to us, you mm-hmm. know. Therefore, uh, you know, it wasn't hard because many people speak English in the French area. And then I had but so when, many... when did you learn English? English. Oh, wow. You know, we uh, I learned it in school for mm-hmm. about six, seven years mm-hmm. in, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. We studied English as a second language, but mm-hmm. it wasn't spoken or heard. Yes. Yeah, it was on paper. So what was it like trying to speak English in Cameroon? Well, David can tell you it was funny. I couldn't really speak it well, but, you know. It was a struggle. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could read and write easily. Oh, really? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I needed to hear it and speak it, mm-hmm. which was uh, I needed very the different. experience. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it didn't take very long, you know, to just say the simple things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't the barrier that Farsi was when you arrived in Iran. Uh, no, no, no. It wasn't the same thing. And you know, African are very welcoming and they don't make fun of you if you don't know a language. Though the Iranian also always were very happy to hear the way I spoke because it was with accent mm-hmm. and they said that is very sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, they always encouraged me. Until mm. today, you know, when I meet Persian, they say, oh, you have an accent. Which part of Iran you come from? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't sense I'm not really. I wasn't born and bred there. Mm-hmm. But they, uh-huh, they, mm. they can understand. It's mm-hmm. not my first language. Mm. So uh, you got married and moved to Kribi. Yeah, and we stayed about nine months, and then it was really boring for me to stay home because all my life I went to school and all my life I worked, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to have a job. Mm -hmm. So one day while we were in the capital, David and I met the Prime Minister of Education. And we asked her that uh, I would like to have a job. Mm -hmm. She said, okay. If you are ready to move to different city where they need a math teacher, if you are ready to teach math and leave chemistry aside, okay, you come. So immediately David and I looked at each other and we said, okay, let's go. And we did. So at that time, David was teaching English as yes. a second language in Kribi. Yes. So was there a job waiting for him wherever this other place was? Oh, yes. He could teach English to anybody. Mm-hmm. And our school we went to was a bilingual. So they had also Fran- people who spoke French mm. and people who spoke English. So there were people who studied English as a second language. Mm-hmm. And that's what he taught at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Then he moved to teach. So what city did, was this that you moved to? Uh, the name was Bamenda mm-hmm. in the northwest of Cameroon. And what year was that? That was nine, uh, December 1989. Okay. Yeah, when I so was you were given in Kribi, the job. So you were in Kribi for uh, nine mm. years? Are nine there? months. 1979, I was given the job. Oh, I thought you said 89. Sorry. No, it was 1979, Ah, December. Okay. Yes. Okay, so from 1979 
and you've stayed in Bamenda ever since? Actually, we moved 1980 because we had to come back, collect our things, and David had to end with his school. So we moved. Mm-hmm. It was at the beginning of 1980 mm. to Bamenda. Okay. Yes. So you've been in Bamenda for 26 years? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you've been teaching math all that time? Actually, I taught math till 1992. And then there was a crisis in the chemistry department. The One of the teachers had an accident. And they really needed chemistry teachers. And the principal discovered that I had done chemistry. And he called me to his room. And he told me, from tomorrow you are teaching chemistry. <laughs> So what was that like? Very hard. You know, I'm a person who doesn't like change, although I never liked to teach math because it was not really my specialty. But it was hard to switch to chemistry. Mm. But I did it. It was a lot of work, mm-hmm. a lot of work, but mm. uh, I did it. Mm-hmm. And you've been teaching chemistry ever since? Or? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a big task to teach math in Africa and uh, science, chemistry. You know, first of all, maybe it's all over the world. I don't know. People don't like math. Children really don't like mathematics. And mathematics taught in Cameroon is not like the way it's taught in the U.S. In the U.S. is very, they begin progressively and very simple and they teach you a lot about a certain topic before they give you another one. But in Cameroon, they follow the French system, and it's really, really hard. But uh, So it was hard to teach, but I was very patient with them, and my standard was very high because I always gave them a lot of homework, and I wanted to make sure. You know, the classes were very big, like 100 kids sit in one class. And I wanted to make sure that all of them learned the math. And it was very difficult. But later on, I realized not everybody must learn math because it's nice if everybody could learn math. But it, it's too hard for me to make them learn what they don't want to learn. And I became more, you know, easy. It was I I was easier on them. I didn't make them to learn, you know, didn't oblige them to learn. I just let it go, and I realized not everybody can learn perfectly. Mm. Yes, Mm. learn perfectly. Mm. I was very good in math. Mm. So I thought everybody must pass. But, you know, the system there, even if you don't pass math, but you have an average over 10 over 20, you can always climb to the next class, which I never thought of because it was not the way we studied in our school. Mm -hmm. But it was okay. Uh, And now, you know, after 25 years, I meet the kids I taught 25 years ago, and I taught them math. And they tell me, you taught us very well. And mm-hmm. that's why we are teaching math today. No way. And even the one who are lawyers, 
he remind they remind me of everything I said in the class and how I made them to do their homework mm-hmm. by you know because I didn't want to beat because there they beat and I didn't know how to beat the kids so I told them if you do your homework and you come to the board and solve I will add one mark mm-hmm. but if you don't do your homework I will decrease your mark and that's the method I took mm-hmm. and actually many of them today when they meet me on the road they think I know them you know but I know I taught hundreds of them each year right so I am very happy to see them they are all big in their mid 30s mm-hmm. and late 30s and um, but they feel very close to me and mm. uh, they appreciate that mm. I was a good teacher. Would you say you're the only teacher that did not use punishment in the school? Only teacher. I was the only woman teaching math, first of all. And maybe, you know, I punished. This is punishment, you know, removing one I mark. Is, physical but physical punishment. I did physical punishment. Yes, I think David and I were the only people who didn't beat the children. Was, did this present a problem? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Pe- teach, other teachers actually appreciated us, especially me, because I'm a woman, and I was very thin. You know, in Africa, you have to be fat and aggressive. Then the kids will fear you, and they will call you a good teacher. But the kids respected me and obeyed me, although I was small and thin. Mm-hmm. So they appreciated the fact that I could control my class without beating. So there wasn't any jealousy or anything? No, you know, African cannot feel jealous of me, I don't think. They're mm-hmm. very nice people. Mm-hmm. You know, they may feel jealous of each other, but not with us. No, oh, they nice. respected us and mm-hmm. loved us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I understand you did some social development work in the community while you were in Bemenda. If you could describe some of that work that you've done. Yes. You know, as Baha'is, we concentrate on the education of children and women. So we always... And why had, is that? Uh, you know, the children are the future builders of the society mm-hmm. and uh, the women are the mothers of the children and the first teachers of the children mm-hmm. of the children they bring to this world you know of their own children therefore you know in the bahai faith it is emphasized that we must teach children from the from early age teach them the right habit teach them prayers teach them the love of god and teach women how to raise their children in the love of God and how raise, to raise them, uh, to give them to the society as good element for the societies. Therefore, we began this meeting with mothers as Baha'i group, you know, we invited our friends who were Baha'is, Baha'i women, and we always asked them to bring their non-Baha'i friends. So we had women meeting for Baha'i women and non-Baha'i women. And these women, after a year or two, they were so happy. They said, all these things are so wonderful. But you know what? We also want our husband to learn. Because we alone, we cannot do 
things like not beating the children. If we don't beat the children, our husband still beat the children. And if we need our husband to respect us and love us, we can't tell them. But if you tell them, maybe they will change. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we transform the meeting now to family life meeting, from women meeting to family life meeting. We invited their husbands. So that was for mothers and fathers to come together. Mm -hmm. Then many, many people who were not Baha'is, they said, our life transformed. Mm. Our life is not the same. Why don't you people share this with more people? Mm. And one of us made a comment. These lectures are so beautiful. Why not we put them on radio? Okay, so we approached the radio and uh, we showed them our pro the, the same lectures we used to give to the mothers or to the parents. Mm -hmm. And the radio manager liked them and he was afraid of one thing. Will you speak about politics? We said no. Baha'is don't participate in politics. We work with the people, with the spiritual development, not political development. Mm. And then since he was a neighbor and he knew us, he believed in us and he allowed us. And then we made the program called Mothers, Fathers and Children. Mm. And it was very, very popular. They put it on the air. Uh, like 15 minutes before 7 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's the time where everybody is prepared, preparing to go out to work. And then uh, everybody was listening to it. It was fantastic, mm -hmm. and everybody loved it. And until today, it's more than 15 years today, it's the most popular program. And uh, whenever... We are with new people we have never met before, and we say, "Oh, you know, we are." You know, we introduce ourselves, and we say, "We are Baha we are here because we are Baha'is." You know, because everybody asks us, "Why are you here? What are you doing in Africa?" Most of the people, you know, foreigners come to work for one year, two years with big organization and make a lot of money and go back. But we have been there for a very long time, so people are very inquisitive. What are you doing here? So we say, we are Baha'is. So, oh, yes, you have a wonderful Baha'i program. And, uh, you know, this is mothers, fathers, and children. Mm -hmm. We can't miss it. We can't afford to miss it. Mm -hmm. So, And actually, some people even come to the Baha'i Center and say, well, because we like your program, we want to know about your religion. Mm -hmm. What made you to say all these good things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What kind of radio station is it? Actually, the only radio station was a government one controlled by the government 100%. Mm -hmm. But now we have many private ones. And these private ones, you know, mostly they want to really make money mm -hmm. because it's not easy. Of course, you know, I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, we. But sometimes they do invite us to talk about the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you expand your programming on the show to other themes in addition to... Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Actually, we they ask us later on if you have a religious program, you can come up with it. And now we have two programs. One is Mothers, Fathers, and Children, and a new one, Living the Life. And the, Living the Life is uh, purely Baha'i principles and Baha'i beliefs. Mm-hmm. 
and it is once a week, 15 mm -hmm. minutes. And sometimes we put Baha'i songs in Baha'i prayers. Mm -hmm. And people like it. Mm -hmm. And what time of day is that? Um, it is 10.45 on Sunday in the morning. And you said your first program was every morning? It was that one. It was, I think, once a week, but once. it was in the morning. Mm -hmm. It was only in the morning, yes. Mm -hmm. It was, but it was uh, on a working day. It was not on a Sunday. It mm -hmm. was on Monday, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the show, Living the Life, what kind of principles would you? Well, we mostly talk about the history of the faith, mm -hmm. and then we talk about Baha'i principles like equality of men and women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of my friends come to me and they say, if really this is the Baha'i faith, I love the Baha'i faith, mm -hmm. just through this one principle, the mm -hmm. equality of men and women. Mm -hmm. And we talk about uh, other principles as well, mm. like peace, unity of mankind, and um, uh, how important to have one language, about how to forget about prejudices, differences, because we are all from different ethnic groups, mm. different colors, different languages and how God created all of us and loves all of us and how we all must love one another mm. and other Baha'i principles. Yeah. How large was the, is the listening area? Is it oh, Baminda? It's, it's big. I'm sure it's a few hundred thousands, mm. maybe two to three. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What future plans do you have? I think I leave my life in God's hand mm -hmm. and I feel we will always be there and we will always be doing social work mm -hmm. working with parents working with groups who need help and also telling the people about the new religion which God has given to all mankind that God has spoken to man again And the name of the manifestation of God for today is Baha'u'llah, mm -hmm. means the glory of God. And Baha'u'llah did not come to add one more religion and create more discrimination, but he has come to bring unity among all religions and eventually among all mankind. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any hopes of seeing your mother again? I wonder, you know, my mother is 78, 79 years old now, and she has breast cancer. Mm. And I wish to go and see her, but the situation in Iran now is not really encouraging to go. Some people go and come with no problem, but some people go and at the time they want to leave, they create some problems for them. Mm. And therefore, I'm not really sure. But mm -hmm. if the situation is better, I may make the trip. Mm. Have you seen your mother since you left? Yes. My mother came after 23 years of me leaving Iran. I left Iran in 1979. Therefore, she was in Britain. She came to visit my sister in 2002. And she was there 2002, 2003. So I spent two summers with her. Mm. 
and uh, it was interesting to see my mother when I left her she was like about 50 years old and when I saw her it was 70 years old so it was a shock to see an old woman uh, who was my mother yeah. yeah yeah but a sweet reunion I suppose oh yes yeah yeah it was nice well Manal thank you very much this was very interesting you are very welcome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Manal Gillette, a Baha'i of Iranian descent who was born in Iraq, then moved to Iran at the age of 22, and then to Africa a few years later teaching math and science for nearly 30 years in Cameroon. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Oh
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.